Liftoff on Apollo 11. Next on the Public Radio Hour, the first of a two-part discussion on America's race to the moon and the legacy of Werner von Braun and his role in desegregating Marshall Space Flight Center. There was this belief that technology and the, and the ways that we developed the, this technology, particularly in the 60s, particularly at that time, where if we applied these same principles to society, we could enact change there as well. So that was a very important debate that was going on. And the Sundial Writers' Corner shares stories of girl power as we wrap up Women's History Month. Betty was a sexy little flapper who could sing, dance, and act. If Ijeoma Oluo walked in this room right now, I would totally fangirl. And we'll preview bicentennial activities for the month of April, including great music events exploring blues, gospel, and classical music. Our weekly mix of special programs and homemade radio features is next. This is the Public Radio Hour on 89.3 Huntsville, our weekly mix of special programs and homemade radio features. I'm your host, Brett Tannehill. Tonight, we'll continue our series of conversations with Sally Warden, Executive Director of the Huntsville-Madison County Bicentennial Committee, previewing amazing bicentennial events happening in our community, including W.C. Handy's Blues Legacy of the Dance on April 5th and 6th, and the evolution of gospel music in Alabama on April 11th. Our Sundial Writers' Corner honors Women's History Month with stories of powerful female figures. We'll hear from Ted Roberts, Mariah Beachboard, and Terry French. But first, let's talk about Apollo 11. Zero, all engine running. Liftoff, we have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Or more specifically, the space race between America and the Soviet Union to be the first to land on the moon. NASA chief historian Dr. Bill Barry was in town this week, and we were lucky enough to have him stop by, along with Marshall Space Flight Center historian and WLRH community newsroom producer Brian Odom. Over the next couple of shows, we'll talk about the Apollo mission and try to better understand the complicated legacy of Werner von Braun, father of the Saturn V rocket. Newly declassified documents have shed new light on the race between the United States and the Soviet Union to claim the title of first to the moon and the political, social, and scientific implications that would come along with that. Dr. Barry says the newly released documents show that, despite public perception, the Soviet Union never gave up on beating the U.S. to the moon and actually came within two hours of doing it. The Soviets had a lunar robotic probe that they had built uh, they started, actually, strangely enough, started this project in January 1969. And in seven months, they built and launched the probe to go to the moon to bring back a soil sample. Uh, and it was in orbit around the moon when the Apollo 11 crew arrived in lunar orbit themselves. And um, they were having some problems with it, with the altimeter on it. Uh, and they finally decided that we need to, we need to make it land. Uh, it was originally supposed to land about the same time that the Apollo 11 crew was going to land. Um, but they delayed because they were having this problem. And they finally decided to, to fire the retro rockets and landed on the moon, um, like I said, about two hours before Neil and Buzz were due to launch to come back after their, their walk on the moon. And um, uh, the probe started its landing descent, and about 10 minutes into landing descent, the single stopped. And we know that because the British at the Jodrell Bank Observatory were actually listening in on it, and they heard the signal just drop off suddenly. And they said, uh-oh, this doesn't sound good. Um, and sure enough, that, that's exactly when it apparently crashed into a mountain because their, their altimeter didn't um, have a good reading on the heights of the things in the moon. So if, if they had succeeded, they would have gotten their probe back a little bit after the Apollo 11 crew, but within a day, uh, probably less, a couple of hours maybe even. Um, and then they could have said, hey, we got to the moon just as soon as the Americans did, and we didn't even risk anybody's life to do it. What would the difference have been if they had gotten there first? Is it, is it a, a claim to who got there first? I mean, how much difference does that make? You know, from our perspective, it would have, I think, had a, a, a significant political impact in the United States that, that, in fact, you know, the Soviet Union was still racing us and still trying to beat us. In fact, if they did, if they had beaten us there, I think it might have had, had a, a significant impact on the decisions of the Nixon administration, which the Nixon administration was not you know, pushing the space program. They were really pulling it back and throttling throttling back. And, and that's how we wound up with, you know, the, the Apollo program being short, you know, shortened and curtailed uh, during the Nixon administration. For the Soviets, um, space was really one of the things that they did really well. 
Uh, and um, and so it was critical both um, internationally because you know countries were looking to the Soviet Union. You, you got to remember in the 1960s, believe it or not. Now, now that we know how it turned out, it seems kind of crazy. But but people really seriously thought in the early 60s that maybe the Soviets knew something and their system worked better than the U.S. system. Um, and and that was one of their big arguments was that you know look we keep beating the Americans in space. You know we obviously know better about how to run a modern economy. So that was, you know, internationally really important to them, and they kind of lost that as the United States was stepping out with the Gemini program and then the early Apollo program. And um, domestically, it was important because the Soviet leaders, particularly Leonid Brezhnev, who is now in charge of the Soviet Union in the 1960s, he was closely associated with the space program. So both internal politics within the Communist Party, but also within the Soviet Union itself, um, it was really important to the legitimacy of the government that they have a success in space and, and losing the race to the moon uh, was a huge blow. And in some ways, I think, uh, led to the inevitable collapse of the Soviet Union as people lost faith in the system of government that they had there. And it seems so incredibly close to being uh, here or there with that. I mean, perhaps if this one tiny thing hadn't failed, the, the entire story would have been different. That's the thing about history. You know, yeah. you, you, little things can, can make a big turn on, on, uh, on major events. And, and oftentimes we sort of look at history and say, well, you know, of course it's going to turn out this way. Well, it didn't necessarily have to. And this is one of those cases where now that we know what's going on, we can see that, that in fact, uh, there are all kinds of possible repercussions if, uh, if they're, they're attempted to be some. They, the, the robotic probe thing, by the way, was a last-ditch effort. They actually had two completely separate programs to beat us to the moon. One's to send a crew around the moon, and then another one to actually land a crew on the moon. And both of those did not succeed. Um, so they, they did the robotic lander as a last-ditch effort. Brian Odom, you have anything to throw in on that? I can't add anything to that. That's <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think from a history standpoint, you know, Bill makes a great point that it's this contingency, right? You don't know what's going to happen, and you so your policy making going into it, uh, you know, if we perceive that the Soviets are basically leaving the the space race, then that has a ripple effect into the American system, right? Because these things are expensive, uh, they take a great national commitment, and if it looks like the race is over, then you begin like Nixon administration to pull back that commitment, and then what happens? going forward. I mean, so uh, how these things play out are very important. I mean, you know, there's, you know, you talk about conspiracies about, you know, <laughs> Von Brown and, you know, the group that, uh, you know, if we were to, if we would have beaten the Russians into space first, if we had launched Shepard into an orbital, you know, into orbital flight before Gagarin, right? If we had won that, what momentum would that have taken away? So there's all of this stuff to be considered. So that's a very important point. What are some other things about the Apollo 11 mission that you think gets overlooked when the story is sort of told in a, in a, in a rapid style? What things get overlooked? Well, you know, part of the thing, after 50 years, we've heard the story over and over so many times. It becomes sort of shorthand. You know? Right, right. You know, Kennedy says we're going to go to the moon. You know, we you know, eventually start doing better than the Russians. They drop out of the race. And, uh, and then, you know, Apollo 11 gets to the moon. And, well, of course, they landed on the moon. Well, uh, to me, one of the critical things about Apollo 11 is um, is that in fact it may not have been Apollo 11 that would have landed on the moon. We we were we were fully expecting that some of those Apollo missions would have to be redone. Um, for example, there's a lunar module, you know, an operational lunar module sitting in the Air and Space Museum right now. We built that to test it in space, um, you know, before we sent the first human crew up on the, on, on Apollo 9. Uh, but that was supposed to be an unmanned test. That lunar module was built to be used because we expected that we were probably not going to be successful on the first test. Well, the first test of the lunar module without a crew on board, we sent up basically robotically uh, in Earth orbit. Uh, it went so well that, you know what, we don't need this lunar module anymore. And, we're gonna, and it wound up in the Air and Space Museum. So we kind of wound up with it by accident. Um, but uh, there are all kinds of things that could have happened uh, throughout the, you know, the winter and spring of 1968 to 69 that could have pushed back and it could have been Pete Conrad who was the first guy to walk on the moon or or Jim Lovell if Apollo 13 had been successful and landed on the moon. Um, the, any number of things they might have had to redo missions. So to me, that's one of the important things is we, we sort of look at it as, you know, you know really, you know, people kind of look back and go, well, it's kind of obvious. You know, okay, you fly Apollo 7, you fly Apollo 8 around the moon, test the lunar module in Earth orbit, and you, then you test the lunar module around the moon on Apollo 10, and then you land on the moon. You know, obvious. Well, maybe not. Uh, we were really, really lucky. Everything went really, really well from the fall of 1968 until the summer of 1969 when we landed on the moon. So to me, that's one of the, the big things about it is, that, is how much when you look at 
you know, the chronology of what happened in the spring of 1969, you know, 50 years ago today, um, they were they were you know making stuff up as they went along, fixing problems, and it was very unclear, you know, that I think to a lot of people involved in the process, that that you know we would be completely successful and in, in to the degree that we were, uh, and that's to me that's one of the big takeaways for looking at looking at the anniversary over again. And this question uh, for both of you: do uh, do you both have sort of a favorite side story related to Apollo Eleven that uh, that maybe? other people don't know something that that you've sort of discovered in your work as historians that you just think this is this is cool well i think maybe not just to apollo 11 but i think the idea of you know the people themselves who are involved in these not even the people that not directly working for the program i mean the ripple effect this has you, know, you think about the hidden figure stories, uh, the, right. the ripple effect that this has in the communities these centers exist in, which is, you know, uh, at places like Alabama A&M, how there is the ability for, you know, the president at that time of the university to say now black students are, you know, new careers are within their grasp because of this new field, this space uh, space industry. Uh, we're going to begin to train uh, our students for math and science careers. I mean, so that has a gigantic ripple effect. And I think for me personally, my research is really into that to look at how these people make these decisions. Again, contingency, because, you know, the civil rights movement is coming along at right about this same time. Uh, you know, leaders in the black community are able to harness that energy as leverage for desegregation campaigns, as leverage to to gain funding for these programs of math and science that their students have previously in the South at least been barred from in the past. So I think, you know, talking to people in, in today, you know, as a historian, being able to go talk to people who actually went through that process, who saw that happen firsthand, I think, you know, just like with the rest of the Apollo missions, it's something that, uh, you know, I don't take for granted definitely because it's, it's, a, it's a very special thing. And we touched on that a little bit uh, earlier this month on the Public Radio Hour with the interview that you did with Jeanette Sism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Jeanette is one of these people, right? Jeanette comes in as an African-American woman into a career in math and science that before, if she wanted to pursue that education, it would have been uh, as, a, as a teacher in the black community, but because of these transformations, she's able to then, you know, take some science classes, begin to move into a new career, you know, uh, have a job at Marshall Space Flight Center where she looks at, you know, uh, sunspots. You know, I mean, this is something that, you know, not not decades before, but years before that would have been completely with it outside of her grasp. Uh, you know, so Jeanette is definitely a, a key piece of that puzzle. And even the long term impact of someone like, you know, that same interview, we talked to Sheila Nash Stevenson. You know, and Sheila is someone who, you know, as an African-American woman who comes along, uh, you know, and on, kind of standing on the shoulders of giants, right? These decisions that were made in the 60s and she's able to benefit from them, become the first black woman in the state of Alabama to receive a Ph.D. in physics. So, I mean, you know, to me, those stories are, are just as interesting, but it and it doesn't detract from the story of Apollo 11. It magnifies it because, you know, we think about the direct result of landing a man on the moon and returning him safely to Earth. But, you know, then you think about geneticism, you know, someone living in the South in a world of seg- – growing up in a world of segregation. It, that program, the, the efforts, the national effort that was put in that program, you know, is able to redefine the contours of her life. So it's, it's, it's amazing. And, and again, just adding to the mystique of, of what, you know, you talk about in the Soviet system, this idea that their system would be better than ours. Uh, you know, there was this belief that technology and the, and the ways that we developed the, this technology, particularly in the 60s, particularly at that time, where if we applied these same principles to society, we could enact change there as well. So that was a very important debate that was going on. And, and, and you know, these people who go through it, it's, it's very interesting. And, and listeners, we do encourage you to go back and listen to those interviews that uh, Brian just referenced there. You can find those in the podcast archive for the Public Radio Hour at WLRH.org. If you look under programs, you can see all our local shows. You'll see the Public Radio Hour. Just click and search there. Uh, Bill, you have a favorite story? Um or stories. Uh, there, there are so many good ones. And, yeah. and Brian makes a really good point about the, the cultural aspects. I'll, I'll do the sort of standard NASA thing, which uh, talk a little bit about technology, which is becomes often too much of a story. So I'm glad that you know Brian is, is, push, is you know is is so eloquent on the on the the social issue because it, 
NASA and, and the space program had a huge impact on the whole world in the 1960s. Uh, uh, the British author Arthur C. Clarke once said that uh, uh, the 1960s was like a decade from the 21st century misplaced in the middle of the 20th century. Um, but one thing I'll, I'll mention is um, uh, when you listen, if you listen to the, the descent and landing of the Apollo 11 crew to the moon, um, there's all this shortcut language um, where they're talking about numbers and alarms and things like that. And it's really difficult to understand what's going on. You know, there are a bunch of professional test pilots uh, talking to a bunch of engineers on the ground. And so they're, they've got the shorthand things. So it's really hard to understand what's going on. But one of the things that happens is they get this alarm, first a 1202 alarm, then a 1201 alarm on their computer. Altitude 1600. Eagle looking great. Roger, 1202. We copy it. 35 degrees. 750. Now, computers, you have to remember, were new back in those days, right? And the fact that they could build a computer that would fit inside the lunar module and not fill up an entire room uh, of a house uh, was an amazing thing to start with. Um, and that computer was developed uh, by folks at the MIT Instrumentation Lab up in Boston. And the, the team that wrote the software for that computer um, was led by uh, Margaret Hamilton, a woman, young graduate student. Actually, she was, had been working on a PhD, and, and they pulled her off to work on this project, and so her PhD got delayed. Uh, but there she is, and she's running this team. She basically, in the process of writing the software, invents the whole idea of systems engineering and computer engineering. Um, and that, this whole new field basically gets created on the basis of how they went about pursuing that project to write that software. And they wrote the software in such a way that the computer, which had very little capability, you know, really was, you know, your, your phone is hundreds of times more powerful than, than the, that computer. Uh, they had to basically reprogram it all the time. Much of the conversation that you hear, uh, air-to-ground conversation between the crews in Apollo and the ground, they're, they're confirming that I want to program the computer to do this, and, and they're reading off the numbers and the, and the commands they're putting into the computer because the computer couldn't remember enough to, 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 to do the, <laughs> the think, programs I on I think own. that's lost on people these yeah. days. It's like, yeah. It was, it was a very rudimentary computer. But – the brilliant thing that Margaret Hamilton and her team did was they wrote the software on that computer in such a way that, that it would recognize uh, when it was being overloaded and uh, would then prioritize the most important things. It knew it was smart enough to know what's most important. and it would Instead of just crashing. Instead of just crashing, right? Yeah. So it didn't crash, right? Uh, so as they're coming into, the, into land, what happened was um, – Buzz Aldrin had left, um, actually intentionally turned on the, uh, a switch to turn on the, the radar, um, a radar system that, as it turns out, wasn't supposed to be on. It didn't say that in the checklist. So he assumed more radar is better, so he left that switch on. Right? And it was feeding more information to the computer than it could handle. And the 1202 and the 1201 alarms that they hear are the computer telling the crew, guess what? Uh, I'm overloaded. And I don't I'm, like it. Yeah, and, and I'm not going to crash. I'm going to dump these other things that aren't important, like this radar data that I don't really need. Um, but I'm still working, and I'll get you safely to the moon. That's what those 1202 and 1201 alarms meant. So uh, the, what those alarms did was they, they, they allowed the crew, the computer and the crew, not to crash uh, and, and allowed the crew to continue to land, even though the computer was, was being overloaded. Um, so a brilliant maneuver. Um, unfortunately, the crew... Had never the crews they simulated everything. Those those guys when they landed on the moon, they'd spend hundreds of hours in the simulator and they'd, they'd you know practice crashing and dying many times. Uh, and uh, and so, uh, but this was one they hadn't hadn't done before. But the the crew in mission control also was in those simu simulations. And just a, about a week or so before the, the actual mission, the the, the brilliant guys in the um, the simulation supervisory positions that that created these scenarios for these simulations where they, they try and kill the crew on, in the simulation, right? They, they, they pulled this one on, on, the, on Gene Kranz's crew as they were doing a, a simulated landing, and, and they aborted the landing because of a 1201 alarm. And, and Kranz was very unhappy about that, and he, he told the guy who was the, the computer expert, said, you find out what all those codes are, and I want you to have a list of what all the codes are so when we get one of these alarms, we know what the heck it is, right? And we don't have to worry about it. So... During Apollo 11, the crew's coming down the land, 1201 alarm. The guy, the guy in the trench down there in mission control goes to the guy in the back room who's got the list. What's it mean? And the guy goes, we're good. We're good at that. And then they go back and they tell the crew, it's like okay. Alarm, but don't be alarmed. Yeah, you know. yeah. <laughs> That's just what the computer telling you? I'm still working. Yeah. And, and so, so you know, all that practice really paid off. And the brilliant you know, software engineering that was done in the background to create a non-crashable computer in the 1960s uh, was pretty amazing. 
So that kind of brings us to uh, the, the moment of, of touchdown there, where the you know where it, it actually happens. Uh, can you share any any sort of additional insight as to that final really moment when it happens? Boy, I, I think that the tape sort of speaks for itself. There, um, there, there were um, as they were coming down to land. In addition to the distraction of the, the computer alarms. Um, they were a little bit long because we didn't understand the gravity field of the moon as well as we as we as we now do uh, at the time, um, and so um, the, the the trajectory of the lunar module was actually bringing it farther than they you know farther down range than they were planning, and it actually was pointing them into this field full of boulders. And Neil Armstrong, smart guy, doesn't want to land on top of boulders and crash, um, so he just he, he basically levels off and then goes as fast as he can, basically sideways. He's basically hovering with the lunar module and, and translating sideways uh, across the surface. Last second, last second yeah. dodge to get away from this field of boulders so he can land safely. So um, now they're running out of fuel, right? Um, and and they, when they touch down, there's you know there's you know there've been various people about how do you measure. How do you measure how much fuel is left in the tank? It's kind of hard. We didn't really have a way to do that. Uh, but the, the estimation is that there were somewhere in the range of about 20 seconds of fuel left before they touched down. So the first words that come from Houston are basically Charlie Duke, who was the astronaut who flew on Apollo 16, was the, the, the capsule communicant. And you hear his voice, you know, basically, you know, are you guys okay? Uh, uh-huh. and, and, and Neil says, you know, Houston Tranquility Base here, the Eagle has landed. And then Charlie, you hear this, he kind of bulbs out this, oh, we got a bunch of guys about to turn blue, we're breathing in. And people, <laughs> people wonder, what the heck does that mean? Well, it means that literally everybody in mission control was holding their breath, wondering, you know, are they going to run out of fuel before they land? Are they, are they crashing now? I mean, are it's we- like the culmination of so many thousands of hours of work, and you were, I can just see them just, oh, my gosh. And- Neil Armstrong's heart rate, right? Neil Armstrong's heart rate never really goes that high. I mean, you know, it gets to get a little elevated, but it's not. Uh, you know, he's handling kind of cool as a cucumber, right? He's, he's yeah, he's a test pilot. He's seen all this stuff before, so you know, he's he's like, okay, this is just like the simulations, uh, and I'm I'm fine. And and that was one of the things about Neil that uh, um, some people have that gift of being able to you know operate a, equipment in a way that uh, exceeds most of us our capabilities. And Neil was one of those kind of guys who. Who um, you know, hand him a piece of flying equipment, you know, an airplane or a rocket engine or whatever, and uh, he just he just becomes one with the machine and, and puts it where it needs to be, uh, and that's what he did with in this case saving the mission. Contact right. Okay, engine stop. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. Roger, Twink. Tranquility, we copy you on the ground. You got a bunch of guys about to turn blue. We're breathing again. Thanks a lot. We'll have more stories related to the Apollo 11 mission as its 50th anniversary draws closer this July. We also hope you'll join us to celebrate Space Day on May 3rd at the U.S. Space and Rocket Center as WLRH and Alabama Public Television host two great events, the Mission Control webcast and screenings of the new Chasing the Moon documentary. You can find more information about that on Facebook. Just search for Chasing the Moon or search aptv.org. And be sure to tune in next week for the second part of our discussion with Bill and Brian as we dig into the complicated legacy of Werner von Braun, including an in-depth discussion of his connection to the Nazi party and the atrocities related to his work on the V-2 rocket, as well as his role in desegregation in Alabama and at Marshall Space Flight Center. You don't want to miss it. And don't forget you can explore this and past episodes of the Public Radio Hour in our podcast archive. Just go to WLRH.org and look under Programs for the Public Radio Hour or your favorite local show. Thanks for tuning in to our weekly mix of special programs and homemade radio features. In this next segment of the Public Radio Hour, we'll give one last hurrah to Women's History Month with a series of commentaries from the WLRH Sundial Writers Corner. We issued a challenge to the Sundial Writers to share a story of an important woman in their life. Here's Mariah Beachboard. If Ijeoma Oluo walked in this room right now, I would totally fangirl. She is a published author, a mother, and a YouTuber. She is beautiful, brilliant, and brave. Ms. Oluo took her experiences as a mixed-race woman in Seattle and turned it into a national learning possibility. 
Because of her work, the American Humanist Society awarded her the 2018 Feminist Humanist Award. I first encountered her incredible mind in an article she wrote for The Stranger after she interviewed Rachel Doljal, the white woman who presented herself as black. Mizoluo deftly sifted through the paradigms of racist thought to determine why Rachel Doljal presented herself as black. In the span of three minutes, the article revealed to me my own paradigms and faulty thinking. As a kid, I couldn't understand the invisible wall which kept me separate from other kids who were of color. Year after year, I puzzled over how to fix the thing which separated, the thing which kept me out of the inner circles of African-American communities, the thing which kept my white family from watching African-American movies, the thing which told me to lock my car when driving past a group of African-American men, the thing that made all of us white kids stare at the only African-American kid in the class when they announced on the PA system, O.J. Simpson is found not guilty. This thing that separated felt ugly. It felt dirty and shameful, and I wanted it gone. But I didn't have the words to address it. No one talked about it. And if no one talks about it, then no one can fix it. You see, institutionalized racism, the thing that separates, is not about what I'm not allowed to do. It's not about my exclusion from their culture. It's about what they're not allowed to do, become, achieve, retain. In reality, it's not the thing that separates. It's the thing that steals. Mizuluo's book, So You Want to Talk About Race, provides scripts for constructive discussion. It reveals opportunities for challenging and removing institutionalized racism. Throughout, Miss Oluo encourages and inspires the reader to do better. And that's her point. We can do better. She speaks out because she hopes we will change things. She truly believes we can fix our nation. As I study her words, she teaches me how to remove the thing that steals. My eyes are opened, my mind is attentive, and my heart is forever grateful. Ijioma Oluo, you are my hero. That was Mariah Beachboard, one of our Sundial writers who shared a story as part of our celebration of Women's History Month. Next up is nationally known poet and high bun creator Terry French, and this commentary titled a woman of character. For over 30 years, she has been a woman I've looked up to. Intelligent, beautiful, multi-talented, independent, fun, and she loves dogs. Actually, her boyfriend was a dog, Bimbo, but we won't delve too far into that relationship. And she also has a little pet dog named Pudgy. If you haven't figured it out by now, I'm talking about none other than Betty Boop, a cartoon character created by Max Fleischer in the 1930s. Betty was a sexy little flapper who could sing, dance, and act. She could bat her long eyelashes and boop-boop-a-doop her way into anyone's heart, as she did mine. She may have been cute and sweet and even at times vulnerable, but this little lady could take care of herself. Starring in 50 animated episodes... She has played not only a flapper, but a palm reader, Snow White, Alice in Wonderland, a judge, and even a candidate for President of the United States, running against a Mr. Nobody. Among other campaign promises, Betty offered to tame a split and incorrigible Congress made up of donkey Democrats and elephant Republicans. Wouldn't that be nice? If a woman winning a presidential election in the U.S. in the 1930s wasn't scandal enough, it is rumored that President Boop may have also been of mixed race. Though Betty is said to have been modeled after 1920s flapper Helen Kane and actress Clara Bow, 
1932 lawsuit by Helen Kane against Max Fleischer and Paramount Publics Corporation, the defense argued that Kane had modeled her persona after Harlem Cotton Club singer Esther Jones, also known as Baby Esther, for her baby-like style of singing. Jones was of African-American heritage. Jazz scholar Robert G. O'Mealy wrote in the anthology Uptown Conversation, The New Jazz Studies, that Betty Boop had, as it were, a black grandmother in her background. The Motion Picture Production Code, popularly known as the Hayes Code, of the mid-1930s, unfortunately toned Betty's image down and attempted to strip her of her spirit. No more short dresses or plunging necklines. No more carousing in late-night jazz clubs. But that is not the Betty that we remember today. She is, and always will be, a brunette bombshell celebrating her sexuality. After my divorce, I had to start out on my own and budget my meager finances. I got a tiny apartment in a subsidized housing community. I got a cat, which would have been a dog had the complex allowed them. I devoted an entire room in that apartment to a shrine to Betty, full of figurines, posters, and other Betty memorabilia. I'm almost, but not quite, embarrassed to say I even had a pair of Betty Boop panties for every day of the week. I knew if Betty could make it as a single working girl, so could I. Yes, I guess you could say I'm obsessed with Betty Boop, both the femme fatale and the feminist, a character of questionable morals and background with unsquashable fortitude, who at 89 years of age this year is still going strong. Boop boop ba doop. We're listening to entries from the WLRH Sundial Writers Corner, telling stories of important women in their lives as part of Women's History Month. Our final entry comes from Ted Roberts. A super mom. Mothers, raising kids is no picnic. That's not news. Besides, parents did all the help they can get. So let me suggest we might benefit from a counseling session with a 17th century matron, a prodigious mother named Gluckel of Hamlin. With that name, you got to be good. Does the city sound familiar? It should. It's Hamlin of Pied Piper fame. Remember the charismatic guy with the flute leading all the kids to the riverbank? Well, it wouldn't have worked if Mother Gluckel had been around. Sadly, Gluckel died in 1724, which prevented her from hosting the greatest TV talk show ever about parents and kids. But she left us a legacy in the form of her memoirs. This worthy woman lived many centuries ago in Germany, the product of a well-to-do family, and she was given in marriage at the age of 14. Can you imagine? She must have been a beauty with a generous dowry to overcome that name and her age problem. The adolescent wife blossomed into motherhood and produced 12 children. But even more important than enriching her local obstetrician, she somehow found time to write her memoirs. Long ago, this supermom understood a child-rearing mystery that we haven't figured out yet. The question, why don't our kids write more often or call, say once a week? Why don't they love us more? For 18 years, mother fills their little minds with wisdom, wipes their little runny noses, and loads up their little arms with presents. And what do we get in return? Zippo. Every three months, Citibank, no kin whatsoever, writes us a cheery, chatty note attached to a new credit card. Citibank, this total stranger, writes regularly, while from your will or bill, not a word. Let's face it, no matter how much love, how many gifts you give your kids, they never reciprocate with the constant, intense love that you demand. The great puzzle, of course, is why, particularly since you're a prince of parents, generous, entertaining, caring, an all-round fascination to the rest of the human race. 
And Citibank is not your only correspondent. There's Amico Chemical Bank in the restaurant that sends you a coupon redeemable for a free iced tea. Well, this is the conundrum that Gluckle of Hamlin examined and explained. She tells us of a mother eagle who must ferry her brood over a wide sea to a new nest. Four fledglings depend on her. Four perilous flights. She fights a headwind. Her wings grow weak, and there's far to go. Do you love me? asks the eagle of her first charge. And will you promise to repay me for this? Yes, I swear, pipes the child. The mother knows a lie when she hears one, and she drops her burden into the sea. Same story with eaglet two and three, but the fourth child gives a universally honest answer for offspring of every breed. Mother, she says, I can only promise that when I have my own children, I should do as much for them as you have done for me. The debt will be paid in full, but only to your grandchildren. The weary mother knows the truth when she hears it. So she fights the wind and fatigue, finally bringing the child and the mother of her grandchildren safely to the shore. There's a lot of wisdom in that parable. Family love, like rivers, doesn't flow uphill, but mostly down. So console yourself. Your kids, who never even send you a postcard, will likewise receive no postcards from their loving but busy kids. Moreover, one day over a nice cup of tea at the kitchen table, they'll ask your advice on this problem. Mom, I'm telling you, they never call or write. I send presents, nothing comes back. What is it with kids? Sip your tea, look thoughtful, then tell them the fable of Gluckle. Big thanks to Ted Roberts, Terry French, and Mariah Beachboard, a few members of our team of Tennessee Valley wordsmiths who make up the WLRH Sundial Writers Corner. We'll have more stories and commentaries from the Sundial Writers in the coming weeks. The Sundial Writers Corner airs in its regular time slot every Monday morning at 9, right after Morning Edition. If you'd like to learn more about submitting your work to Sundial and explore the Sundial archives, which includes some great entries from master storyteller Catherine Tucker Wyndham, check out our website at wlrh.org and look under programs for the Sundial Writer's Corner. And you can also listen to past episodes of the Public Radio Hour. This is 89.3 Huntsville Public Radio. Alabama's bicentennial celebration has gotten off to a roaring start this year and no signs of it slowing down. We're trying to keep you in touch with the amazing things happening in our community. And to help with that, Sally Warden, executive director of the Huntsville-Madison County Bicentennial Committee, is stopping by each month to preview upcoming events and activities. Right off the bat here, we're seeing a lot of exciting events happening uh, in relation to the Bicentennial for the month of April, including a couple of really interesting musical events. Exactly. Uh, W.C. Handy's Blues Legacy of Dance featuring the Alabama Youth Ballet Theater. That's right, Brett. Thanks for having me to talk about the April events oh, that are coming for the Bicentennial. You know, as the weather's getting better, the activities are picking up, and we have a lot to talk about in the next several months. And that's right. The Alabama Youth Ballet will be performing W.C. Handy's Blues, Legacy of the Dance. This is actually a performance that um, they created. It is an original performance they created with a grant from the state Bicentennial Commission. It's going to be April 5th to the 6th at 7 o'clock at the Von Braun Center Playhouse. The Handy family, the Alabama Youth Ballet, dancers, as well as local artists have joined together to tell the story of Alabama native W.C. Handy. They're using Handy's words and his music to pay tribute to the man whose uh, influence on American music is something to make us all very proud of. It features uh, guest musician Ron Handy, and guest performers, as well as the Huntsville Spiritual Chorale. It's going to be a once-in-a-lifetime debut. I've heard music from the Huntsville Spiritual Chorale before, and they are amazing. That's right. It will be an interweaving of dance, music, stories, all about W.C. Handy's life and the influence he had on music. The Huntsville Museum of Art has a new exhibit coming up, or an exhibit extending, perhaps? 
Sort of. They actually, ever since January, have been um, featuring Alabama artists in their um, in their galleries. This particular one um, is with Alabama artists who have contemporary work. Uh, previously, they were historical paintings, and now these are ones that are a little more contemporary in nature. It opens uh, April the 7th and runs through June the 9th. And I mentioned the uh, the musical events happening in the month of April. And this next one that you're going to tell us about, I'm especially excited about. Uh, during Black History Month in February, we ran a documentary series called The Gospel Roots of Rock and Soul and got a fabulous response to it. And this event, the evolution of black gospel music in Alabama, looks to be a nice sort of connector to that, uh, except featuring and focused on the great state of Alabama. That is right. This is one you are not going to want to miss. Again, it's the evolution of black gospel music in Alabama. It's being put on by the Oneness Committee of the Tennessee Valley Jazz Society, along with a partnership with First Baptist Church and St. Bartley's Church. Uh, What's interesting here is First Baptist Church on Governor's Drive was the First Baptist Church in Alabama. St. Bartley's Church was first in Alabama, period. Period. They are the ones that really have the reason to be able to use the name First Baptist Church, Um, as well as St. Bartley's Church, which was was the first African-American church in Alabama. So this event really has a lot of nice sort of overtones of uh, diversity and, uh, and different people coming together to create this experience. You are right on that. They're exploring how Alabama's gospel music evolved and its impact on Alabama and the world. It's going to feature speakers, musical demonstrations, and musical performances. And as I said, it's a great collaboration between St. Bartley's First Baptist Church and the Oneness Committee of the Tennessee Valley Jazz Society. It's going to be held again on Thursday, April 11th, starting at 6 o'clock p.m. at First Baptist Church on Governor's Drive. And I bet there's a big crowd for that. I would hope so. I think it's going to be one you don't want to miss. So speaking of big crowds, uh, April is also the big month for Panoply. Everyone's got their fingers crossed for good weather, and Panoply uh, has a neat bicentennial tie for the upcoming uh, uh, exhibition and event. Wow, do they ever. As a matter of fact, Panoply has embraced the many anniversaries we are having here in Madison County uh, to the hilt. Not only will it feature um, the Bicentennial with the um, Panoply Bicentennial Village, uh, there will be a big focus on the Apollo moon landing anniversary as well. You know, um, the Panoply is always well known for their children's art interactives. This particular year, there are going to be some art interactives with the theme of history. Um, for example, Lily Flag Moo Masks, uh, honoring our famous bovine here in Huntsville, Alabama, as well as a downtown mini city where the kids will be able to use cardboard boxes to reconstruct what they think downtown Huntsville looked like back in 1819. I know I've mentioned before to you about the Ditto Landing um, Ferry, Gunwell Ferry replica that they have down here. Well, guess what? We are pulling that out of the water and bringing that to Panoply. Oh, wow. Because one of the things the kids are going to be doing at Panoply this year is to build big spring boats. And they want to, we want to use the historical ferry uh, as a prototype for them to build their boats. Um, so lots of great things taking. The uh, Botanical Garden Guild is going to be there. Uh, showing the children Native American plants, um, as well as Huntsville Symphony Orchestra Guild will have their Discover Music showcasing historical instruments. So that's the uh, Bicentennial Village at Panoply, along with all the great art and music and other activities, April 26th through the 28th at Big Spring Park uh, in downtown Huntsville. And Sally, before we kind of take a little peek into May, because there's some great events happening as well, let's look back a little bit because we're, you know, uh, into the bicentennial year at this point, and we've seen uh, a stamp dedicated and all sorts of other neat activities. What are some things so far this year that you have really enjoyed or that have that uh, have stood out to you? Well, I have to say that stamp dedication was something to behold. We had the legislature up here, uh, had a reenactment of them signing the 1819 Constitution, complete with the uh, clerk of the uh, Alabama House calling out their names in their original (laughs) counties, uh, which included some from Cherokee lands and Creek lands as well. And the legislators seemed to get a big kick out of that as well. They got a huge kick out of that, as well as a lot of them, it made them start thinking about what was going on 
on back in their own hometowns that they needed to hook in with on the bicentennial. But, you know, the bottom line is that Alabama state stamp is just beautiful. And if you haven't seen it yet, uh, you when, next time you're in the post office, you need to stop by and at least buy one page of those stamps because when they're gone, they're gone. Uh, but I do know they have been selling very well in Alabama. What are some other things that have stood out to you so far this year? I think, you know, back early in February, we also had the genealogy conference here, right, the DNA right. genealogy conference that um, was a partnership between the public library, the genealogy societies, Alabama Heritage Magazine, as well as, of course, Hudson Alpha. And um, that was something that really has a life beyond the bicentennial year. It was a sold-out event. Uh, We had people from Ancestry.com. We had many of the researchers from Hudson Alpha there talking about their research into DNA genealogy and how DNA plays into DNA testing, plays into genealogy, Uh, something that really we can all be proud of that will have a life beyond the bicentennial year. And one reason that we're doing this segment uh, with Sally Warden Uh, the executive director of the Huntsville-Madison County Bicentennial Committee, is, uh, Sally, we're trying to uh, encourage people to really think about history uh, during this bicentennial year and make these connections that are so important between past, present, and future. Yes, you're exactly right, Brett. You know, everybody is not going to be a hardcore historian remembering facts and dates back from 200 years ago, but it's important to know the great things that have taken place in Alabama over the uh, last 200 years and to see how all the organizations in town have tied into that in their own interpretation. And when you start to dig in, you discover things that you didn't know about your own community, about the amazing things that happened in the earliest days of Alabama right here in Huntsville. You are exactly right. Uh, We have a lot to be proud of over the past 200 years. Uh, Our forefathers here in Madison County had an awful lot to do uh, with our first state constitution. So now let's sneak a little peek into May, shall we? So there's a lot of great things happening, and we've we've covered April. And uh, But I do want to talk just for a couple of minutes about some things happening in May, unless there's anything else in April that you want to bring up. Well, one up. other thing I do want to mention that will be going on in April is we have an African-American Bicentennial Subcommittee, and one of their activities is going to be held on April the 20th, Race to the Future, 5K, and a fun run. It's going to be, like I said, on Saturday, April the 20th, with an 8 a.m. start for the 5K, followed by the fun run at the Gateway Greenway Park uh, in downtown Huntsville on Monroe Street. And I will get you that link so we can uh, send the registration in information out to the listeners. So listeners, uh, you can go to WLRH.org and look on the podcast page for tonight's Public Radio Hour, and you can find links to all these events. You can find a link to the registration for that uh, event as well. So now sneaking a peek uh, into May, this is something that uh, is always really special whenever uh, soprano Susanna Phillips performs here in her hometown of Huntsville. Susanna sings Strauss. Huntsville Symphony Orchestra uh, on May 4th. What's so great about that event? Well, you know, two of Huntsville's most accomplished classical musicians will be in Huntsville that night performing at the concert hall. Soprano Susanna Phillips, as well as bassoonist Matthew McDonald, both products of Huntsville. And uh, they return home to help the Huntsville Symphony Orchestra celebrate Alabama's bicentennial in grand style. So Susanna and Matthew uh, also put on what I really think is one of the best events in the entire state of Alabama, Twickenham Fest, uh, that is usually uh, toward the end of August each year. It's a chamber music concert series where the public is invited to go and experience these world-class composers and musicians who come to Huntsville, uh, friends of Susanna and Matthew, and, and perform in its free concerts. You can go and check it out. Uh, that's Twickenham. We're looking really far ahead Uh uh, but that will be a bicentennial. I am oh, yeah. dying to say something because that known. will be a bicentennial event as well because it's their tenth anniversary. Can oh. you believe it's the tenth anniversary of Twickenham Fest this year? So they will probably put be putting on a very special show. So that's a very special thing happening in August. But we're, we're going to stick in, in May for just I have one. too many things in early May. We can't look ahead to August quite yet. I know, folks. There's a, there's a lot happening. So, But let's <laughs> look ahead to one more thing, uh, past, present, and future with the Huntsville Master Chorale on May 3rd. That's funny because just a second ago, Brett, you said past, present, and future. And I thought he looked ahead to see what the next event was <laughs> I was going to talk about. And that's Huntsville's Master Chorale on May the 3rd at Aldersgate United Methodist Church at 7 p.m., 
and again on May the 5th, Messiah Lutheran Church in Madison at 4 o'clock p.m. You know, the Huntsville Master Chorale is a long-standing, dynamic performing chamber music group that fosters creativity by keeping excellent choral singing alive in Alabama. They've put together a, their special interpretation of past, present, and future, which you can imagine covers back from 1819 uh, to the Space Age and beyond. So that will be something to see. You know, there's one more thing that's early in May that I want to mention as well. Brett, do you have time for that? Let's let's squeeze it in. Okay. Well, 2019 Whistle Stop Festival is going to have a big bicentennial theme. This is the annual barbecue festival that's held down at the Huntsville Depot grounds. This year, they're going to have the ultimate tribute to Alabama artists in their songs, but it's going to be by tribute bands. So rather than having Jimmy Buffett here, we will have the tribute band Caribbean Chillers doing Jimmy Buffett uh, songs. Uh, The band Alabama won't be here, but Tennessee River will be here, which is a tribute band to Alabama, as well as All My Rowdy Friends, as you can guess, is a Hank Williams Jr. tribute band, as well as an array of local and regional artists from Alabama rounding out the Alabama-themed Whistle Stop 2019. One thing that we haven't discussed is uh, what local schools are doing uh, this month. Are there any interesting bicentennial events related to our public school systems? Actually, there is one, as a matter of fact. In April, a little later in April, um, Challenger Middle School, and I may have mentioned this in previous months, Challenger Middle School is working on rewriting the Constitution of Alabama. We did talk about this. I believe we yeah. did. Well, guess what? On the 16th at Grissom High School at uh, 7 p.m., I believe it is, yes, 7 p.m. on the April the 16th, they will be having some local legal experts discuss the pros and cons of the 1902 Constitution. The kids will go back the following week. This is all 6th through 8th graders at Challenger Middle School and work on rewriting the Constitution to come up with something a little more palatable than the foot-high Constitution we are working under now in Alabama. We may have to do a whole episode on on what they come up with. That will be very interesting what the 6th through 8th graders will come up with on that. But again, April 16th at Grissom High School will be um, a pros and cons uh, presentation on the current uh, bicentennial. Judge Linwood Smith, as well as Julian Butler and several other judges in town, will be talking about Uh, what is in that current constitution we are all under, because it's very difficult. Uh, Lots of folks don't understand it all because it's so huge. No one really knows what's in it until you have a reason to look in it for a specific uh, topic. Sally Warden, the executive director of the Huntsville Madison County Bicentennial Committee, stopping by every month to give us a preview of how we might help celebrate this great bicentennial year. Sally, thanks for stopping by again. We'll see you in a month. Oh, that's right, because we have chock full. As the weather gets better and the summer starts coming, we have more and more events to add to the calendar. Right on. Thanks. Thank you. That's it for tonight's show. We appreciate you spending time with us. The WLRH Spring Fun Drive begins in April with our on-air pledge week scheduled for April 24th through the 27th. Yes, we'll be encouraging you to support the programs you love and value, but it's also your chance to let us know what you'd like to hear on your local public radio station. In 2018, the Public Radio Hour did a series of interviews and features exploring mental health issues in our community. And now, we want to hear your ideas about what we should cover in 2019. Share your thoughts on the WLRH Facebook page or drop us a line at WLRH.org. We'd love to hear from you. And don't forget to tune in next week as we explore the complicated legacy of Werner Von Braun and his ties to the Nazi Party and to desegregation in Alabama. I'm Brett Tannehill. Thanks for listening 